Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, James Cronin, author of the new book, Fragile Victory, The Making and Unmaking of Liberal Order. Uh, Jim, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you for having me. And congratulations uh, on the book. So what is or was uh, liberal order? Well, that's a pretty central question. Uh, liberal order means different things to different people, but to me, uh, it signifies the kind of um, international order that was put in place uh, at the end of the Second World War uh, and that stayed in place more or less effectively uh, for many years thereafter. Now, that needs to be qualified uh, because, of course, the original vision of a liberal international order uh, didn't you know, have as part of it the division of the world into a Cold War order, two spheres uh, that define the different different uh, orders that coexisted during the Cold War. So in some sense, it's not a liberal world order. It's a big section of the world that agrees to operate as a sort of rules-based international order. And then there's a kind of broader Cold War order in which uh, it's situated. Now, with the end of the Cold War, uh, it became possible for the liberal international order to extend much more widely. Uh, and it did, at least for a while. <laughs> it seemed to be successfully expanding and incorporating new um, parts of the world and new countries, uh, new nation states. Um, and then, of course, sometime around the year 2000, um, we began to see the limits of liberal order, uh, the people who began to push back on it, uh, the countries that felt they didn't get a fair share out of it. And so it's been under attack, or at least under challenge, since about 2000. I mean, you could perhaps date that more precisely to 9-11, when a big section of the world made it clear that, uh, you know, the, the sort of Western secular political culture and ways of being um, that were implicit in the liberal international order uh, weren't universal. Finally, let me just add that liberal international order um, had what I suppose, to, to, to paraphrase a Catholic phrase, uh, a preferential option for liberal democracy. And liberal international order and liberal democracy uh, aren't identical by any means, but there was a, a, a one promoted the other and was more consistent with the other. Yeah, and it's interesting, these uh, contradictions or paradoxes are things that you explore a lot in the book. On, on the one hand, you make it clear that uh, liberal international order is, is an aspiration, um, but, but there's also the cynical way of looking at it as this is just another way of describing American power and hegemony. Yes, and I do try to deal with that. Uh, although, to be honest, uh, well, let me say how I try to deal with it. I, I make it clear, uh, I try to make it clear that for the most part, the alliance, uh, set of alliances of which the United States was part and in which it was the dominant part or hegemonic part, partner, those alliances were for the most part bargained, not imposed. Whereas on the cold, the other side of the Cold War divide, uh, order alliance was coerced. And I think you know, that's a pretty big difference. So, uh, yes, there is the potential for hypocrisy in discussing a liberal order and for simply um, 
equating it with U.S. dominance, but the way in which the United States exercised its dominance after the Second World War um, was not always benign, but it was certainly uh, much less coercive than the kinds of order that had come before, than it you know, was meant to replace, like the kinds of order that uh, Germany and Japan had envisioned for the sections of the world they would dominate. Uh, and it certainly was different from what the Soviet Union did in its sphere of influence. So, yes, uh, the possibility for confusion, hypocrisy is, is there. Um, and I did try to make an effort to to to, to qualify it and explain it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, as the book was finished, more or less, about to go to press, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I felt that that was a kind of punctuation mark on perhaps at the title or the end of or the beginning of the book in that it, it showed what um, what liberal order wasn't. Uh, it, it, liberal order did not sustain, encourage, legitimize that kind of behavior. And if one had a doubt about whether liberal order means anything, um, you could you know, suppress that doubt by contrasting it with the kind of behavior that Russia under Putin has engaged in. Yeah, and it's it, it's it's interesting because I mean you do talk um, quite openly about what you describe as the democratic deficit um, within the United States that very often seems at odds with the idea of liberal order uh, for much of the post-war period. Yet on the other hand, yes, there is this this contrast. We're not talking about the alternative. The the gulags of high Stalinism, uh, or as you say, the uh, the invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, almost exactly a year ago. Indeed. And I'd be careful about pushing this, but I would say that the West or the United States uh, and its allies uh, in the liberal order uh, had or felt a compulsion to improve over the course of their history and the functioning of liberal order. And I think um, there are two big, big deficits in liberal order as it was created in the 1940s. The first deficit uh, was empire. Many of the countries with which the US was allied uh, still possess colonial empires. Uh, on the other hand, it seems to me the logic of a liberal international order is fundamentally anti-imperial. So that even though countries allied with the United States from Belgium to France to the Netherlands and uh, certainly Britain uh, hedged and hawed and, and, and resisted decolonization, it came. And it came within, you know, about 20 years of original setting up of a kind of liberal order. And uh, that was a huge global transformation and liberal order uh, certainly accommodated that. It may even partly have facilitated that. And the second big deficit was was about race in the United States, and that too saw on that issue there was progress after the 1940s. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting even on that question of empire that uh, you are actually quite unusual um, in recognizing the United States as an empire post 1945 and using that term unapologetically. Why do you think so many historians are resistant to using that term? Well. Uh, my use of it is qualified, I think. It's an empire that also has aspirations not to be an empire and pretensions not to be an empire. And uh, and again, that um, non-imperial vision of being, of an empire uh, 
ultimately serves to transform the country and the quasi-imperial essence of it and its foreign policy. That's interesting. We don't want to get too sidetracked, but the British would have said exactly the same thing about their empire, that the empire was always the the idea behind it was that it would be transformational, that eventually countries would have their independence. I mean, in some ways, we need to be careful about uh, the hypocrisy which is involved in exactly that sentiment, don't we? Whether it's Britain or whether Britain in the 19th century or the United States in the 20th and even into the 21st, Iraq, for example. Yes, I think so. It's also important to, to, to understand the qualification. Um, the United States acted imperially often, but the aim was not to create an empire most of the time. Uh, and that suggests perhaps a delusion at the heart of much American action. But it's not quite the level of hypocrisy um, of the British Empire, uh, which purported to be training these uh, benighted folks for independence and good governance. And really, you know, up until surely through the 1930s and into the 40s, Britain was pretty keen on holding on to as much of its empire as possible, despite, you know, trying to mollify it and mollify its inhabitants. Part of the uh, the interesting element of the story are these various challenges uh, that come to uh, liberal order and also the way in which um, uh, particularly uh, developing countries, uh, new countries on the world stage use their position uh, to try to gain leverage with the United States. I mean, non-aligned countries in the 1950s, the Suez Crisis mm -hmm. and so on, but very powerfully. Uh, you show how the oil-producing countries in the 1970s um, are able to challenge American power. Why was that so important in terms of uh, the liberal order? It was so important because the maintenance of liberal order uh, and its, its sort of growth and stabilization in the 1950s and 60s uh, have been based on prosperity, uh, prosperity unique in human history. And however one describes the formula that uh, was applied in developed capitalist countries to get that growth going, it was a formula that could be and was, in fact, disrupted by uh, sky-high oil prices uh, and shortages in the 1970s. Now, we could get more technical and detailed about the economic history. Uh, it's clear that the the, the, the structural factors and the technological forces that allowed growth to be so massive and rapid in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s were becoming less effective. So that, in a sense, the uh, inflation and oil crisis, inflation produced by oil crisis, you know, came on top of a generally slowing down growth engine. Uh, Together, that produced what, as you know, people called stagflation, this, this, this tendency for the economy to, to slow down, become more stagnant, and at the same time for inflation to take off. A unique phenomenon that totally puzzled uh, policymakers and really brought a paradigm shift in how economic policy should be followed, uh, pursued in the United States, Britain, and other Western countries. Uh, that was the shift. Uh, as I'm sure we're all aware, to what was called you know, neoliberalism or market fundamentalism uh, associated with Thatcher and Reagan. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That, I mean, as you say, that becomes the new order of the day, starting ironically with many of the reforms by Jimmy Carter, who's not somebody that we often associate with uh, neoliberalism, but uh, a lot of those are, and then given rocket fuel by Reagan and Thatcher, but then accepted by the left, the centre-left leaders like Tony Blair and uh, and Bill Clinton. So, so that really becomes the immediate post-war consensus, uh, at least in the early days. What what are the implications of that? I think the implications are tremendous. Uh, I think it's the <laughs> the post post-war, right? In some some sense, post-war sort of ends in the seventies, and you're in a new world. Um, but that new world is is largely neoliberal and uh, it it's very contradictory. Uh, it does mean that what we think of as liberal order, as a global phenomenon, you know, is now more neoliberal than liberal, uh, which will, for example, have a big impact on what the liberal order offers to the countries that have overthrown Soviet domination and uh, that variant of socialism. Uh, what they're offered is not the kind of reformed capitalism of the 1940s and 50s, but a, a sort of stripped down, raw and naked neoliberalism, which is a little harder to take and impose on these uh, countries making the transition. I think that the other point about a uh, neoliberal vision is that it's kind of lean and mean, and it works, works powerfully for a period of time. Uh, clearly, Reagan and Thatcher had uh, the wind at their backs. Um, they uh, had a, a set of economic crises that they confronted as they entered office, mostly symbolized by inflation, um, but also, as I suggested, by a slowdown in growth. And neoliberalism worked quite well to you know, end inflation, in effect, to tamp it down. Now, you know, the serious recession of 1981-82 helped that as well, but that in turn actually reduced demand for things like oil, uh, which led to declining oil prices in the late 80s uh, and other phenomena. But once neoliberalism had accomplished that um, defeat of inflation, it had a lot less to offer to voters, to certainly to workers, to ordinary people, in whichever country, let's just say the United States and Britain. And it, it was a barren kind of creed. And so you see by the late 80s, early 90s, you know, people moving away from it and being willing to elect a, a Bill Clinton or ultimately a Tony Blair, who, as, you're, as you've said completely correctly, accepted an awful lot of what Reagan and Thatcher had done. In fact, that was one. That was one of the things that I found uh, kind of interesting because you you seem quite skeptical about the revitalization of the left, uh, the left of centre parties by neoliberalism. But exactly as you say, there, Clinton and Blair were t two of the most successful and popular leaders of the post-war period, and they accepted the or, or reconfigured neoliberalism uh, for for the left in ways that were really quite radical for the time. They were, and uh, many of my friends who are on the left, and uh, I've been there, and, uh, you know, are unwilling to recognize the contributions of Clinton and Blair uh, for all sorts of reasons. For Blair, it's mostly about Iraq, but it's also for their 
willingness to come to terms with neoliberalism. But if you think about some of the changes that uh, Thatcher and Reagan uh, brought about, it was it's almost impossible to imagine an opposition party, the Democrats or Labour, <clears throat> really reversing those. I mean, if one thinks of all the things that Thatcher privatized, both in terms of you know housing, but more, most importantly, uh, industry, there would have been it would have been completely impossible for any subsequent government, however much they thought they'd reconcile themselves to neoliberalism, to reverse that. It would have cost so much. It would have required massive tax increases and, and, and probably wouldn't have produced better outcomes in terms of how those industries uh, operated. And much the same could be said in the United States, where the key uh, reform, if that's the word, that Reagan brought about was substantially lower tax rates. And those were kind of buckled onto the economy and to policymaking very, very firmly. Uh, and so one could only make very incremental changes in terms of taxes. And any wholesale reversal of Reagan and Thatcher's policies, I, I think would have been impossible. And so it was only smart politics for uh, Clinton and Blair to do the reconciliation and the reworking of neoliberalism that they did. We had uh, Mary Sorotti on the show um, kind of uh, last year talking about her new book, Not One Inch. And one of the things that I took away from that was how complex this uh, this post-Cold War period was. That, uh, And one of the reasons that I, that was surprising was because at the time, it almost felt easy and straightforward, didn't it? That I think it's only looking back now that we realize just how difficult creating that kind of new world order after the end of the Cold War was going to be. Why, why do you think that we failed in, in creating that in the way that they had succeeded in 1945? Well, I think there are two big questions uh, in terms of this. The first is what could one expect in terms of the development of Russia after 1991? I think it, it was reasonable to do what one could to bring Russia into the liberal order. Uh, it was reasonable for, for the Clinton administration to do what it could to support Boris Yeltsin and to try to you know work cooperatively with the formers of the Union, with Russia. Um, you know, they, they were given, for example, Russia, a seat on the G7. It's called for a while the G8. And Russia was ultimately led into the World Trade Organization. And uh, But controlling how Russia would develop was something far beyond the capacity of anybody. And not many people said this at the time, but I think what happened in Russia probably happened most because of internal developments in Russia. Because you know, democracy and democratic institutions and properly functioning capitalist property rights systems, they simply weren't, you know, they, they weren't well established. And in election after election in the 1990s and beyond, uh, those people who we from outside identified as liberal, interested in being pro-Western, they kept losing. They kept losing. Uh, and so the, the institutional and the popular base for um, a transition within Russia toward flourishing democracy, those were lacking. Uh, and you could say, you know, you, you mentioned 1945. Uh, if you look back, you know, Germany and Japan were pretty thoroughly defeated. 
uh, there was no question of going on with what had had, had been the norm, the policies and the, the practices. <clears throat> the Soviet Union, in in a bizarre way, you know, fell, but was not defeated, and it became a, a country um, very much susceptible to the ideas that it had been sold out, betrayed. Uh, you know, things just had kind of gone wrong and it was humiliated. It was humiliated by the system, you know, within the country that failed, less so than by, you know, the West. So I think the range of freedom that Western leaders had, the range of options they had for influencing what went on in Russia was so much more limited than anybody understood. And it, I think, you know, a sort of person who thought about this then might have said in the 90s that at some point, Russia will stabilize somehow. And the temptation to go for a strong man uh, will be very, very great because that person would be the one who would help bring about this stability and a measure of economic growth, at least stability. And that once that happened, uh, it's not at all inconceivable that Russia would you know, want to reassert itself on the global stage. And in fact, it was almost immediately in 1991 or 92 that, you know, it became clear that the Russians wanted to uh, have, you know, a preponderant influence in what they called, even back then, the near abroad, meaning that they really did think that they had not a right to rule, at least a right to have preponderant influence in their neighborhood. And I'll leave it here, but the second point I was going to say, the second big challenge, of course, was who knew just how to integrate China uh, into a new global system that we say now, and we, we understand that the idea that simply bringing China in uh, and having it develop in a capitalist direction, having it participate, having it become a stakeholder in the liberal order, that that might somehow loosen up the country or loosen the control of the party over the state, produce, you know, bourgeois freedoms or whatever one needs to, to, to move in a liberal direction. One can say, everybody does now, that it was naive. But I would push back a little and say, well, what the hell was the alternative? You know, how much more would you want to have wanted to confront China? Every effort to confront China, whether it was by the first George Bush after Tiananmen Square, or Clinton repeatedly in the 90s, China didn't budge much, you know, and it was very hard. We had Frank Dakota on talking about his new book a couple of weeks ago, China After Mao, and, and he makes it, he makes exactly that point, that there's, there was a kind of naivety in thinking that uh, we could just take that old uh, John Foster Dulles concept of, of peaceful evolution and apply it to China. Uh, and then the mistake mm -hmm. that the West made was that they didn't actually listen to what China was saying, and that they would always be resistant uh, to to this idea. It sounds to me as that you're using the word naive is is something that uh, perhaps you you think is an overstatement. Well, there's no question that hoping that democratization would come through what the Clinton administration referred to as engagement and enlargement, that was naive. But I don't think that it was a viable alternative. So. Given the lack of a viable alternative, it may have been the least bad option or the most most reasonable option, even. 
One of the the big punctuation marks in the story that you tell is 2008 um, and the the financial collapse. That uh, that there is a sense that that's a moment when the penny seems to drop. That globalization and the international order uh, had failed ordinary people. That that's a disconnect again that will have big implications going forward after the uh, after the crash. Yes, I think that's right. I, I wouldn't underestimate prior you know, developments, um, but that was certainly uh, critical. And uh, it affected both sides politically. That is to say, it was a sign of the failure of, of neoliberal globalization, uh, but that was a, as much of a critique of the right as of the center left. Um, so it, 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 in that sense, it detached or, or weakened the attachment of voters to either party, center left, center right. Uh, and in that sense, it clearly, you know, borrowing away as an over the long term, that, that sentiment uh, obviously prepared the way for the shocks of 2016 for Brexit uh, and Trump. You begin and end the book uh, talking about uh, Donald Trump. Um, now that we're starting to think about him historically, which is not to say that he's <laughs> no longer a, a political figure, but now that we can think about that term uh, historically, what is the case to be made uh, for Trump's foreign policy, do you think, during that, uh, during that administration? Well, the main case, to the extent that one can make it, is that uh, the globalization processes that had worked up until then uh, had um, not benefited large sections of the American population, just like similar policies in Britain had left British folks, British workers, um, big parts of the country vulnerable. Globalization did strip away lots and lots of uh, jobs that made ordinary working people and even middle-class people in the communities that they uh, lived in um, kept them relatively stably allied with one or another political party. And so I think Trump probably deserved credit for making the United States in particular more um, aware of the need to have teeth in its foreign economic policies, that it needed to uh, enforce you know, intellectual property rights with China. It needed to prevent uh, Chinese capture of markets. And, and of course, you know, COVID certainly showed us the uh, downside of uh, supply chains all over the world when we couldn't even get masks, let alone having, there weren't vaccines yet to distribute. But, you know, if you couldn't get masks and gloves, except from China, uh, it was a sign that you know, certain things had gone too far. So I think Trump deserves some credit for that. I think he was sufficiently erratic in what he did or didn't do that whatever reasonable turn he may have initiated was handled poorly and unreasonably, made no sense to, you know, ban aluminum from Canada on national security grounds. So um, fully his grasping at a truth was you know, something that for him, he did naturally and probably not out of much real conviction, but out of, you know, a very good sense of what might sell politically. And he was quite brilliant at that. 
again, it's one of the interesting things. Previously on the show, we've had people like Fiona Hill and and H.R. McMaster, who both served in uh, in that administration. And one of the uh, one of the needles that they try to thread is that is the the idea that strategically there are interesting things going on in that administration, um, and that that sometimes the kind of the style or the presentation uh, or or the execution of of policy perhaps undermine the strategy. But it, but it is one of the things that is striking, uh, it seems to me, that perhaps quietly the Biden administration does seem to have followed a lot of the, or had continuity with the, the Trump policy on China, on overseas wars, for example. And there hasn't been a, a reversion to uh, Obama-era policy, for example, that perhaps you might have expected from President Obama's vice president, Joe Biden. <laughs> Exactly. That's quite true. But again, the contrast between Trump and Biden is so dramatic. Trump did grand gestures and messed them all up and mixed them all up with ridiculous gestures and, and moves, whereas Biden, until he went to Kiev and, and, and Poland, uh, wasn't so great at the grand gesture <laughs> or at gestures in general, but quietly actually was much more effective in policy. But you're right. The direction of policy um, was not back simply toward the policies of the Obama administration. He had adapted. Yes. And and finally, as we've referred to several times during the podcast, we're, we're at the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Um, I wonder, do you feel that that war has given the West more cohesion and unity uh, than previously? That there does seem to be a, a sense that the the of the recognition of the scale of the challenge uh, represented not just by Russia but also China too, and that perhaps there's more cohesion in the Western alliance and a general sense of support for the liberal order, at least in the West, than there has been for many many years. I think that's true. I think you would not have found this level of cooperation and uh, willingness to aid an ally, even if the ally is not even in NATO, you wouldn't have seen that for many, many years. NATO and other alliances that the United States had uh, with countries in Asia, uh, those alliances began to fray clearly uh, with Vietnam and never really quite you know, came back to where they'd been uh, originally until now. Now may not last forever. So we, we, we shouldn't um, assume that the, the, the shifts we've seen uh, will be permanent, but they do seem to be in the direction of long-term coming together. And in terms of Europe, the change in, in Germany is pretty dramatic. And the uh, coming together of Western countries plus their Asian allies is pretty remarkable. And I started the program by talking about how in terms of appreciating what liberal order is and you know overcoming one's worry about the term involving too much hypocrisy and contradiction. Russia's invasion of, of, of Ukraine certainly taught us that liberal order does mean something, and it's worth preserving. So the book is Fragile Victory, The Making and Unmaking of Liberal Order. It's written by my guest, James Cronin, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, but for now, Jim, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.